listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Back in the Gospel of Luke, we spent most of the fall going through uh, Luke um, chapters 1 through 8, verse 21. And this morning, we want to begin in Luke chapter 8, verse 22. We normally have a different series in January, but we decided just to dive right back into Luke and take that up to the summer. So um, Luke chapter 8, we know that Luke, the historian Luke, the physician, is um, writing to a guy named Theophilus, and he wants Theophilus to be certain of who Jesus is. And so Luke takes us through the life of Christ, through the ministry of Christ, through um, the miracles of Christ, through the teaching of Christ, to the arrest and the crucifixion and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Luke takes us through all of that because he wants Theophilus to know, but he also uh, has before us this gospel so that we can be certain as well. This morning, and so um, we want to look this morning at um, Jesus' power, His power over danger, His power over demons, His power over disease, and His power over death. We're going to read the text, and when we look at the text, I want you to understand that each of these four things: the danger is dire, um, the demonic uh, uh, control over a man named Legion with many demons in him is extreme. The sickness has been going on in this lady's life for 12 years. It's extreme. And a 12-year-old girl is laying ready to die and indeed does die. Um, It's extreme circumstances that Jesus our Lord enters into and puts his power uh, on display. What I'd like to do in looking at eight Uh, Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. I want to read these four sections separately. Um, I want to try to uh, walk through them and help us understand each one of them separately, but they're all tied together because they put Jesus' power on display. Uh, There are three things I want you to think about as we look at each section. Whenever we approach the Bible and we study the Bible, it's not a matter of me just getting on my face before God and saying, Spirit, fill me and give me something just out of the air that I can say to the people this morning or give me something out of my experience that I can say to your people this morning. Preaching should come from the text of Scripture. And there are three things that we should always do whenever we study the Bible. Three words, observation, interpretation, and application. I'm going to look at the text this morning, and I'm going to ask the question of the text, what does this say? And so we're going to read it just to observe what is in the text. Now, we know that this is a narrative. We know that Luke is giving us a recollection historically of what has happened. That's a a narrative. He's, He's telling the story of what literally has really happened in the life of Jesus. So we're going to observe that. Um, secondly, we're going to move from observation to interpretation. Not only what does it say, but what does it mean? What does the text mean? Let me just say the text will always mean what it is always meant. In other words, I don't have the privilege of assigning some meaning to the text that doesn't come out of the text, and neither do you. Neither does anyone. We always go to the text to find the meaning of the text in the text, not assigning meaning just arbitrarily. Even saying the Spirit led me to say, this is what this means. The text will always mean what it has always meant. And we study to try to go back as far as we can to understand what the original readers understood by the text. And so we look at historical theology. What, what did they understand about the text? We should always do that. We look at biblical theology to understand it in the, in the realm of a holistic view. How does this fit into all the rest of the Bible, and we even look at systematic theology to understand um, what doctrine is being taught in the text of Scripture. And so we're gonna we're gonna observe, and we're gonna try to interpret, and thirdly, we're going to try to apply. There is a, amazing application. In other words, what does it say? That's observation. What does it mean by what it says? That's interpretation. What do we do about it? That is application. We should always be asking questions of the text. What does God want me to do? What does the Spirit want me to join Him in as a result of what this text says and how I live my life 
today and in this coming week. So think about those things as we look at the text. I'm not just trying to make up something as I go. I'm very limited in what I can say because it must come from the text of Scripture. So the first thing we see is Jesus' power over danger. Look at verse 22. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they, were, and, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? So uh, by observation, we see that Luke is not giving us some detailed dramatization of what is happening out there. He's not uh, delving into what maybe people are thinking or who said this or who said that. He is getting directly to uh, the points. What is happening? How did the, the disciples respond? What did Jesus do? What do we know by looking at the text? We know that Jesus himself initiated the trip across the lake. Let me suggest to you that Jesus knew what he was leading the disciples into. In fact, if he commands the winds and the waves, Jesus is the one who was sovereign over the storm and I would even venture to say created the storm that he was going to take his disciples into. So Jesus is like, let's go out on the lake. He was leading his disciples into something, and he was going to lead them out of something. We can also look at, by observation from the text, that this was probably the worst storm that these sailors, and that's what they were, and these fishermen had ever seen. They were out there, the, the storms we know by studying uh, geography and studying what happens when you've got a lake that's hundreds of feet below sea level and you've got the mountain ranges on either side of it and you know that these squalls or these storms are apt to come down without warning and be extremely severe. These men knew of the possibilities. They were in the middle of one that they experienced many times before, but I believe as we look at their response to this storm that this was the storm of a lifetime, and they really didn't believe that they were going to make it through the storm. This was probably the worst storm that they had ever seen based on what we see and how they're reacting in the text. We also see in the text that from their observation and from our observation that Jesus Christ was fully present, but it seemed like he was absolutely absent, right? Jesus was there, but he wasn't, in their mind, in their estimation, doing anything but yet we see from the text that Jesus was in full control. So we read the text, we observe what we can from the text to get a flow of the text, this narrative, and, and try to understand that. Secondly, we move to interpretation. What is at the center of the text that the author doesn't want us to miss? I think what's at the center of the text and where we can pull in other places in Scripture that point us to what uh, the, the writer Luke wants us to see and walk away with from text is when we see Jesus Christ wake up. I don't know what he did to wake up. I don't know if he stretched. I don't know if he had to rub his eyes. Evidently, he was sleeping uh, pretty soundly. His, his uh, natural melatonin was obviously working overtime, and I don't know if the darkness came. I'm not sure exactly what was going on, but he was see sleeping soundly. It looks like in the text that he just woke up and he rebuked. He commanded. He ordered. The word rebuked is, is a Greek word that basically means that Jesus told the storm what to do as though he had authority over it. We don't like authority anymore. We don't like people in authority. We have, for most of my life, been a culture that is anti-authoritarian, and that's going to create a lot of problems for a lot of people when they stand before Jesus, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. There's coming a day when every knee will bow. You can say that God doesn't exist. You can say you don't believe in God. You can say you don't like God. There's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, and he is absolutely 
in authority of everything that is going on. And nothing escapes his authority. Nothing gets away. And so Jesus wakes up in the middle of this storm. And the writer wants us to see that Jesus rebukes. Jesus commands the wind. Jesus commands the waves. By the way, we haven't figured out how to control any of that 2,000 years later. We can create it at some water park. You can go to Great Wolf Lodge and stand out there, and the wave machine obviously is doing something back behind the wall that's creating some kind of, some kind of uh, um, reaction, some kind of waves. But when a hurricane comes, when a tornado comes, when the oceans begin to stir, nobody's figured out a way to control that yet. Nobody's going to figure out a way to control it. The only one that can control it is God. That's what he's telling us. He, he, I believe, could possibly uh, be looking back to Psalm 106 because if you, uh, if you find a copy of the Septuagint, the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And so 70 uh, scholars were commissioned, 70 Jewish scholars were commissioned to take the Hebrew Old Testament and translate it into Greek. And the New Testament is in Greek. And so we know that there is a Greek word here. I've already mentioned that here in Luke chapter 8. But if, if you go back to uh, Psalm 106 and verse number 9, And we need to see this to understand the gravity of the text. In Psalm 106 and verse number 9, if you read the Septuagint, the same Greek word in Psalm 106, 9 is the same Greek word that we find here in our text that we're reading this morning. But in Psalm 106 and verse 9, it's not talking about Jesus. It's talking about God. Okay? It's talking about God. Psalm 106 verse 9 says, He rebuked the sea. He rebuked the sea. The sea, the, the, the children of Israel were, were in, in quite a, a dilemma. They, they stood literally, if you study uh, geography, they stood on a peninsula with the Egyptian army pursuing them. They couldn't go to the left. They couldn't go to the right. The only thing that they could do would be to go through the sea, through the Red Sea. And God, it says in the text, Yahweh rebuked the sea, and, um, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as though a desert. It, it is only God who can rebuke the wind and the waves, and they obey him. We can go over to Psalm 107, and we can see in verse number 29 the same thing. It says, um, Psalm 107, 29, He made the storm be still, and the waves and the sea were hushed. So we see, in, we see again, the same words there, the same Greek word that we find here. If you're reading the Septuagint, now don't look up those chapters because the chapters are different in the Septuagint than the, than the, the translation that we're looking at today. But the point is this, Jesus rebukes, Jesus commands, Jesus controls the coming and going of the storm. And in the text, we see Jesus in the New Testament doing exactly what God did in the Old Testament. Therefore, the, our interpretation, Interpretation of the text would lead us to this conclusion. This is what Luke is driving the reader to understand. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is uh, the God to be worshipped. That's what he would call us to do. When you see someone awake or asleep and they wake up and they say, wind stop, sea stop, and all of a sudden the sea is like glass and the wind is not blowing. You come to this conclusion, this must be God and we must worship him. By way of application from this section, what do we see? Um, Two things should strike fear within us. Right, And they are fearful in the text. That's very clear. There's no question. They're fearful on two occasions in the text. They're fearful for their life because of the severity of the storm. But once the storm has calmed, they are fearful that they now recognize that they are in the presence of holy God. We're in the presence of God. They were trembling with fear, although the waves were calm. Two things should strike fear within us. Number one, the severity of our circumstances should and do strike fear within us. When life is out of control and it's really scary and it's really fearful, the disciples were scared almost to death because of the storm. The severity of our circumstances should strike fear within us. But secondly, the nearness of sovereign 
God. The nearness of sovereign God. They're in the boat and they're saying, who who is this right here in this boat with us? Is this man God? Was that God that we were frustrated with because he was sleeping here in the boat while we were perishing? Was that God that we were wondering, how in the world can he sleep while we're bailing water? Were they frustrated because... God wasn't carrying his weight. And then all of a sudden he stands up and he rebukes the wind and the waves and they stop. And they recognize that God is right there with them the whole time. Let us fear the severity of our circumstances. I would not encourage you to gloss over them at all. I would not encourage you to act like that they're not dire. They are. But I would also... Uh, call upon you not to neglect the presence of God in the midst of our circumstances. And I would would call on you this morning to not, not to fail to be in awe of the God who's with us on our worst day, in our worst storm. He is with us. By way of application, too, the text lends itself to this. Jesus asks a question, and they ask a question. Here's what Jesus says. Where is your faith? Where is your faith in the storm? Where is your faith when things are outside of your ability to control them? You need to hear that this morning. Where is your faith when things are outside of your ability to control them? Where is your faith when your familiar strategies don't work? Where is your faith when your actions don't control outcomes? If your faith, listen carefully, listen carefully, please. Some of you are going to miss this. Some of us have a a prosperity theology that thinks we should never go through storms. You think we should never struggle. You think nothing should ever be difficult. You think nothing should ever be challenging. And when it is, we want to quit. When it is, we want to give up on God. When God doesn't perform like we want him to perform, we throw in the towel on him. What good is he anyway? And here's what what Luke would want us to see. Here's what Jesus wants them to answer. Please listen to me carefully. This is going to sound weird as I read it. If your faith is not in a God who starts storms, listen, if your faith is not in a God who starts storms, You can't have faith in a God who stops them. Do you understand that? If your faith is not in a God who starts storms, your faith cannot be in a God who stops them. Jesus knew full well what was going to happen on the lake. And I would suggest as earlier that he caused it. He commands the winds and the waves. Everybody wants to believe God for something good, but... but we really struggle to trust Him when things are negative and out of our control. If you can't trust a God who brings sickness, then how can you trust Him for healing? If you can't trust a God who brings death, then how can you trust Him for resurrection? If you can't trust a God who brings death, then how can you trust Him to bring life? If you can't trust God when your body malfunctions, how can you trust Him with your eternal soul? We need to answer those questions. Our faith must go deeper than relating to God for circumstantial relief. Our faith must go deeper than relating to God for circumstantial relief. It has to be not His power. Listen, it has to be not His power to stop the storm. It has to be His presence in The storm. So he says, where's your faith? It's not that I trust him to stop the storm. It's that I trust that I have his presence in the storm. Our greater usefulness is not seen in God making everything go our way. But the hand of providence forcing us to go a different way when we think we have it all figured out. That is faith. 
I know many of you have been through difficult times. You're in the middle of difficult times right now. And we wonder, God, what are you up to? Why are you doing this? Why is this happening? And it's our faith in him in the storm, not our faith if only he will make the storm stop. Our hope then is for his presence in the midst of it all. That has to be the resting place of our faith. But if the disciples were honest and if we were honest when Jesus says, where is your faith? We would say that our faith is in the God of smooth sailing. Our faith is in the God of smooth sailing. My faith is in the God who makes everything go my way. And our faith has to be in the God who is present in the middle of the storm. The second question in the text is this. Who is who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? And it's a rhetorical question. They know the answer to the question. Who then is this? It's, it's, it's growing in their thinking. It's growing in our understanding as we continue to read through Lucas. It's, it's growing in the, the, the understanding of Theophilus. Who then is this? This is God. Jesus Christ is God. Therefore, we should worship him. Therefore, we should understand the severity of our sin, that God had to send his son, that God had to send one who is holy, one who is divine. It is only one like Christ, the God-man, who could come and as a man represent us as sinners, but as holy God, pay the penalty that would satisfy his father on behalf of our sin. Christ coming into the world to be born, Christ coming into the world to live, Christ coming into the world to die should evoke from our soul on any day, our worst day, our best day, a desire to worship him and him alone. Who then is this? This is, this is God. Luke wants the writer to worship. Jesus Christ has the power over danger, but uh, I believe that probably the greater experience and absorption of his power in danger is not when the danger is over, but while the waves are raging and the boat is filling up with water and it doesn't seem like the wind is going to stop and we feel like we are completely out of control and maybe it seems like he's not answering prayer and maybe he's in the front of the boat and maybe he's asleep, but he is there and that is what we need. It is his presence that we need. It's not his performance. But our theology, our, our weak theology lends itself to uh, a performance-driven mentality that says, I'm in a relationship with God for what he can do for me. The second thing we see is not only the power over danger, but we see the power over demons. If you will, go to verse 26 of Luke chapter 8. Then uh, they sailed to a country of the... Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had, de who had demons. For a long time, he, uh, he had worn no clothes. Listen, listen to the despicable condition of this man who was under the control of Satan. Listen to the despicable condition of this man who believes that his sin is better, that Satan's domination is better, that Satan's domination is all that there is, that somehow God is a cosmic killjoy and Satan is the key to life. You want to understand who that scoundrel is that's tempting you? Who that scoundrel is that set a hook in your heart? A long time ago, and every time he wants to, to throw you off the rails, he just jerks the line because he's got a hook set in your heart with sin. You want to understand what he wants to do with you? It says, for a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? The demons understood more about Jesus than many of us do. I beg you not to torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion. That's, that's a lot. 
That's a lot. There, are, uh, uh, there were a lot of demons. For many demons had entered him, and they begged him. The demons are now talking. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged them to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the pigs have more sense than a lot of, a lot of us. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. The pigs would rather commit suicide than be filled with demons. Verse 34, when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Our world is fixing to be rocked. Our lives are fixing to be changed. Something unusual is happening that we're not used to and we're not in control of, that we can't avoid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people in the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. Again, we see fear. We see fear. So he got into the boat, returned. The man from whom the demons had gone, begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Jesus has power over demons. Let me just, let me just give you some points of application from this section. Number one, Satan wants to destroy you. Evil is always hunting. Evil is always hunting you and me every moment of every day. And Satan wants to destroy you. Jesus told Peter, he said, the devil desires to have you. He is ruthless. He is indiscriminate. He hates you. He cares nothing for you. He'd just as soon enter into a pig as a man, and he may be thrilling now, and he knows how to stimulate the dopamine and the adrenaline and push those buttons and the pleasure receptors with his manipulation and lies, but he's setting you up to destroy you. Satan, his name is Abaddon and Apollyon. He is death and destruction. He is death and destroyer. Satan wants to destroy you and he wants to destroy me. Secondly, life without Christ is tragic. This man is living without Christ. We see him transformed, but we see this grotesque description of a man who is filled with demons. Life with, without Christ is tragic. Or we see the successful pig farmers. Life is tragic if you are filled with demons, or life can even be tragic if you're a successful entrepreneur. Anytime our lives are filled with and satisfied with anything that isn't Jesus Christ, that is a tragedy. And we see both instances here. A man that is demon-possessed, all of the energy that he is expending at the power of Satan, and a group of people who don't want Jesus messing up their chi. Right? Don't disrupt our world. Can you make it better, Jesus? Don't disrupt it, though. D don't, don't come in and mess with our business. Don't come in and mess with our success. Life without Christ is tragic. Whether you're filled with demons or you just want life to go better and be better. Jesus comes in and messes it up. Thirdly, Demons recognize the deity and sovereignty of Jesus Christ, and they submit to him. Demons recognize the deity and sovereignty of Jesus Christ, and they submit to him. Shouldn't we who say that we know Christ submit to him as well? Shouldn't our attitude be, Lord, whatever, I, I surrender to you. I fall at your feet. May your will be done. May your kingdom come. One writer said, the terror of the demons is the hope of the church. Unfortunately, the hope of the church, the church doesn't march forward in the power of Christ. But if we marched forward in the power of Christ, if we marched forward in the spirit of Christ, if we marched forward filled with Christ's power, the demons would tremble. The terror of the demons is the hope of the church. And demons are truly terrified at the presence of Jesus Christ. They're not terrified of our religion. They're not terrified of, of our uh, man-made concoctions. They're not, they're not terrified of our, our power that we recognize. Fourthly, just by way of application from this section, there are a couple of motivations and responses to fear that we see, that we see in the text. 
there is a fear of danger that longs for protection. We see that with the, the fishermen. There's a fear of danger that longs for protection. A fear that wants to be protected. A fear that says, Lord, deliver us. I hope you have that fear today because apart from Jesus Christ, you will die in your sin and you will spend eternity separated from a holy God in a place called hell, a place of torments forever. You don't want to go there. You don't want to wake up there. There should be a legitimate fear that calls us to, causes us to call on his name, to say, come and deliver us. There is a fear of danger. But secondly, and this is the greatest fear that exists in the church, and it's a fear of disruption. We see it here in the text. These people are like, Jesus, would you please leave? You are disrupting our lives. We like our life. We like our tradition. We like our way of thinking and living. Would you please leave us alone and depart? Too often we fear economic destruction. Economic success is intoxicatingly and deceptively powerful. And we, like the pig farmers, would rather have economic stability than spiritual revival and transformed lives. That's exactly what was happening in the text. That was the transaction that was made. The fifth thing we see from the text is this. Jesus will not stay where he is not welcome. Jesus will not stay where he is not welcome. Is he welcome in your life? If you want to get a, you say, what, what do you mean? Well, it's, it's called the wrath of abandonment. You can read it in Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is, is poured out. Why? Because they, they were not thankful in their hearts. They would not recognize God as God, but they wanted to take four-footed beasts. <laughs> they wanted to take idols and say, hey, you're going to be God. Not you. You're not going to be God. We're going to neglect you. God, would you please leave us alone? And it says three times in Romans 1, God gave them up. God abandoned them. Jesus shows up, Jesus heals the, 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 the dirtiest, the filthiest, the wickedest, the, the most messed up man in the whole town, and they walk out and say, hold on just a minute, Jesus. How about you getting out of here? Jesus will not stay where he is not welcome. Jesus will abandon us in our sin if we say, leave me alone. You don't want to get to that point. You don't want to get to that point. Jesus will not stay where he is not welcome. Hey, have you, have you talked to, and, and if, if you're in education, my wife's in education. My wife teaches in public education, so don't think that I'm being critical of, of educators, public, private, homeschooled, any of them. But have you talked to any teachers lately that are in brick and mortar? Have you asked them what it's like in the classroom? Have you talked to any of them? Have you heard what the students can walk up and say to them and there's nothing they can do about it, absolutely nothing to do about it? Will, will, you, look, will you look at the moral fabric of what's taking place in, in, in our society? And, and folks, we have, we have at every juncture when we've had opportunity to, to, to tell the Lord Jesus Christ He is welcome in our churches, He is welcome in our institutions, He is welcome in our nations. Every time we have an opportunity to throw out the welcome mat. We say, you're not welcome here, Jesus. You're not welcome here. You know that's true. You know that's true. You flip on the news. You say, what's going on? Jesus is not welcome here anymore. He is not welcome. Jesus will not stay where he is not welcome. He is not welcome in the land that we live in. You can look at the official statements by the highest court in the land and compare them to the word of God and we have said Jesus you are not welcome here anymore someone said to me that they talked to a teacher and all the things that are going on in that teacher's classroom as he tries to establish order and teach teachers can't teach anymore why well we voted God out a long time ago right He's not welcome. You can't, teachers, you can't even mention the name of Jesus. You're going to get in trouble. <laughs> You're going to get fired. And we fall into it. Oh, we can't talk. Jesus will not stay where he is not welcome. And when he leaves, you can expect the demons to come and fill the wasteland, the empty spaces, the vacuum. And the masks are being ripped off. And we can see the fangs and we can see the claws. You want to know what's going on? Jesus is not welcome. But I would say by way of hope, 
Jesus will always have a gospel witness. Isn't it interesting that these people are like, Jesus, get out of here, and here's the man that's transformed. Wouldn't that be great for a traveling show to take this guy with all of his scars and all of his history and tell everybody where Jesus goes about how amazing he is? And he's like, Jesus, let me go on the road with you. And Jesus is like, no, I don't want you to go on the road with me. I want you to stay right here where these folks don't want me. I want you to stay here, and I want you to make sure that although I am leaving, the gospel is staying. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Jesus has given the demons a throat punch, and these folks that would rather have the, the demonic activity and have their stinking pigs back, Jesus has left this guy who has been radically transformed to stay there and to tell the whole city how much Jesus has done for him. One writer said, Jesus can go. But Jesus will stay because there is loose in the territory of the Gerasenes, a demon-deprived evangelist who can't stop talking about what Jesus has done for him. Amen. Let, let them vote. Let them decide. Let them say that they don't want Jesus. But can we be that witness? Can we with joy, can we with the risk of our life, can we with the risk of persecution, can we with the risk of rejection, can we still proclaim the gospel? Even when Jesus has been voted out over and over again. Thirdly, we see Jesus' power over disease beginning in verse number 40. We see his power over danger. We see his power over demon, demons. We see his power over disease. <clears throat> Verse 40, and by the way, this, this next section is intertwined, and there's some interesting similarities here. Uh, you see 12 years mentioned twice. You see daughter mentioned twice. Jesus says daughter in no other place in Scripture except here, although the text is mentioning Luke as a narrator is writing about a daughter of, of Jairus. Notice that as we read through. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. Time is of the essence. You need to come now. Jesus, if you don't get there before my daughter dies, she's going to die, and there's no hope. There's, there's Jesus' power over death. That's the fourth point, but we see Jesus' power over disease now because on his way to Jairus' house, there is this interruption, this kind of weird, um, maybe what in the world's going on? How do you have time to stop and ask who touched the hem of your garment? What are you doing, Jesus? Don't you understand the urgency? Will you please hurry up? Don't let my daughter die. You are in control. If you can't do what I need you to do, then what do I need you for? As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she, was, though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. This woman probably was a woman of means. She probably had wealth, and she exhausted every specialist that she could find to help her with her condition. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceived that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. It's interesting that people are falling down before Jesus all over the place. It's interesting. I think, I think we are quite stoic. I wonder if the truth about Jesus Christ has reached the interior of our being. I think perhaps it's reached the uh, left side of our brain where we think rationally, but it probably hasn't reached the right side of our brain where we function and think emotionally. Because these folks that are encountering Jesus, uh, quite frankly, are just acting weird. And he said to her, Daughter... Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Jesus is of no use to you now. Your daughter's dead. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only 
believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father of the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. She was certainly dead. We all know death. We all know death. It's so ugly. It's so final. It is. We avoid it. Does anybody just go to the funeral home to hang out? No. No. And in fact, if somebody is there that we know, we try to make the visit as brief as it could possibly be because we don't want to hang around death. I don't want to smell funeral flowers. I was at a funeral this past week and somebody said, isn't that a pretty casket? And I just, everything inside of me wanted to say, there's no such thing as a pretty casket. Casket represents death. <laughs> no such thing as beautiful funeral flowers. Not to me. And you may disagree with me. I don't want to debate all that. Why? Because they represent death, and death is ugly, and death is tragic, and death is painful, and death is final, and death is coming to us all, and that's why we try to avoid it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want our kids to see it. We don't want anybody to experience it. Death is powerful. And when it latches on to us, it doesn't let go, and it has control, and it seems like it has the final say. So these folks understood death. They just didn't understand Jesus. Right? Everybody's going to die. It's a point that a man wants to die. They understood death. We all understand death. We, we get that. Seven billion, eight billion people on the planet. I don't know, thousands of years of human history. Nobody's escaped yet. Nobody in this room is going to escape. Death probably should be the most familiar thing to all of us. These people understood death. We're all somewhat of an expert in death. But the problem is we don't know who Jesus is. But taking her by the hand, he called saying, child, arise, and her spirit re returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat, and her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Let me, first of all, just cover Jesus' power over disease, and then we'll look at Jesus' power over death. Um, first of all, you got to understand that this woman um, was physically and spiritually an outcast. She was unclean. She was unclean and she had physical malfunction, but because of her, this particular physical malfunction, she was determined to be unclean. And for 12 years, she was unclean. For 12 years, the identity of this woman was you are filthy, you are unworthy, you are unclean, and nobody wants to be around you. Therefore, this woman was isolated. So there's isolation. But secondly, we see in the text there is desperation. She is willing to risk everything. So she has to cover herself up. You're not talking about a city of a half million people. You're talking about a town where everybody knows everybody. Somehow she disguises herself. I don't know how. And she makes her way through the crowd. Nobody can see her because if they had seen her, they would be required to say, unclean, unclean. And the crowd would scatter. And so somehow she disguised herself. She makes her way to Jesus. She is absolutely desperate for wholeness and desperate for a new life and desperate for a new identity. She, in faith, believed that if she touched Jesus, her life would be changed. Yet, when Jesus was touched, she was unaware that Jesus was going to be aware that she had touched him. And so, as soon as she touched Jesus, Jesus begins to inquire, Who touched me? She's probably scared. She probably felt vulnerable. As the crowd backed off and scattered, people began to recognize that it was her. They were probably repulsed by her and her sickness. They were probably fearful that she was going to contaminate them. That's why we don't want to hang around some folks, I think, sometimes, because we think they'll contaminate us. And Jesus looks at her and he says, you are my daughter. Jesus accepts her based on who he says she is, not based on what the world says she is based on what the gospel says she is, not based on what her sickness says she is. There is nothing like sin and brokenness. Sin grabs us by the throat. Sin pins us to the ground like a 400-pound sumo wrestler. 
and it just keeps us there. <laughs> Greatest fear on, on the earth, humanly, I don't want to get close enough to somebody that's twice my size so that they can throw me to the ground and just fall on top of me. That has got to be a helpless feeling. That's what sin does. Sin just, just knocks you to the ground, and it is so heavy. And it just keeps us there. It keeps us in our past. And sin keeps screaming at us. You are unclean. You are dirty. You are filthy. You are scum. You are worthless. You are undesirable. Nobody wants you. If sin has your ear, that's what it's saying to you this morning. But I have good news for you. The gospel says your sins have been forgiven. The gospel says you are no longer an outcast. The gospel says you are no longer unclean. The gospel says there is good news. There is mercy. There is grace. There is freedom. Run to Christ. Come to Christ. Believe in Christ. Rest in Christ. Jesus' power over disease and the greatest disease is sin. And the great consequence of our spiritual disease of sin is death. The fourth thing we see is Jesus' power over death. I'll say this quickly as I hasten to come to a close. Number one, as we look at the text, please understand God's timing is always perfect. God's timing is always perfect. His sovereignty trumps our schedule. And our ideas of what needs to be done or even what He needs to do need to be washed away. Jesus, my daughter's dying. Jesus, you need to come right now. Jesus, if you don't come right now, we've looked at the vital signs. Everything says she's going to die in just a minute. Would you please operate according to our schedule? Have you ever prayed and wanted an answer to prayer? Have you ever prayed and feel like God wasn't listening? Have you ever prayed and you get results? God's timing is always perfect and His sovereignty trumps our schedule. Don't doubt God when He seems to be taking His time on something that you think is absolutely urgent. Don't doubt God when He seems to be taking His time on something that you think is absolutely urgent. His delays are never haphazard. He is never distant. He may be in the front of the boat and He may be asleep and the wind may be blowing and the boat may be filling with water and you may spend 12 years with an issue of blood. You, you may be oppressed and uh, the, the demons of hell may be attacking you and speaking to you and tempting you. Don't doubt God when he seems to be taking his time. His delays are never haphazard or pointless. In fact, at the end of his delays, there is always great joy and great benefit for those who will rest in him when we really don't know what he's doing. Secondly, when bad advice makes good sense, don't listen to it. When bad advice makes good sense, don't listen to it. Your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the master. Don't ever think that you don't have a reason to trouble the master no matter how bad it gets. Don't ever give up. It's bad advice to think that Jesus can't do anything, that Jesus doesn't care, that it's too late. One writer said, don't trouble the teacher anymore is never a right response to our troubles. Trouble the teacher. Call on the teacher. Call on Jesus no matter what's going on in your life. Thirdly, death is only temporary and never permanent for those who believe. I'm not telling you that if you get sick, you won't die. I'm not telling you that if you call the preacher in to help you in the midst of your sickness, that I'm somehow going to heal you and you're not going to die. But here's what I want to tell you, that based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, death is only temporary and never permanent for those who believe. Jesus came and lived a perfect life and died for our sin in our place. And if we believe in him, we will be resurrected. We will be victorious over death. That is our hope. So what do we see in this text? Let me close. The only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ. 
The only hope in times of danger is Jesus Christ. The only hope in times of demonic activity and warfare, which we're seeing more and more and more and more and more of in our world and in our lives and in our families today, the only hope in the face of demonic activity is Jesus Christ. The only hope in the face of disease, although it may not ever seem to end, the only hope is Jesus Christ. And the only hope in death is Jesus Christ. Our only hope is Jesus Christ. What do we see in the text? Severe trials are never wasted. Severe trials are never wasted. Whether it's 12 years of unresolved sickness or a life taken out at 12 years old, severe trials are never wasted. Thirdly, Jesus Christ takes us through the deep valleys and severe circumstances to show us more of himself to reveal his hand and his heart to us, to show us that our deepest longings are satisfied in him and him alone, and to generate a deeper trust in not only a God who acts. Listen carefully. He takes us through these trials of life, not only to generate a deeper trust in the God who acts, but in the God who is. I hope you hear that. When we connect ourselves to the God who is, whatever he does comes along with that. But when we just connect ourselves to the God who acts and he don't act like we think he should, then we forget who he is. And, and the, gr- the greater faith is not in the God who acts, but it is in the God who is. It is in the God who wants to relate to you, not the God who wants to perform for you. I trust who he is, not what I need him to do for me. And when we get there, when in danger, when facing demonic assault, when facing disease, disease, when facing death, when we trust the God who is, no matter what he does, we will then find joy in him and in his kingdom and with his people. And that's what Luke wants Theophilus to see. Trust me. When you're out of control. Trust me when the doctors offer no hope or help. Trust me when death invades and grief explodes. Trust me, Jesus says. He is the almighty God. I love love the old hymn. My, My faith is found a resting place, not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Are you resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ?